for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, the pandemic situation in the U.S. has been improving since the start of the year, but we're far from being out of the woods. While it's a good position, it's not a position where we should take it for granted that, you know, we're past the worst of this. Helen Branswell, a writer for STAT, joins me to discuss covering the pandemic from its earliest days and where she feels things may be going. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. One of the first reporters covering the coronavirus in the U.S. was Helen Branswell, a writer for the online health publication STAT. In early January 2020, she was already following a mystery pneumonia outbreak in China and has covered nearly every aspect of COVID-19 since. She's with me now to discuss how the coronavirus was on her radar so early and what she makes of the current state of the pandemic. Helen, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. I want to start by kind of going back to early 2020. You were one of the first reporters covering the pandemic here in the U.S. I just want to start by asking how and why this was on your radar so early. What what tipped you off that this was going to be a a real story before a lot of other people were paying attention? So to understand that, you have to know a little bit about me. Before I joined STAT, I worked for the Canadian Press in Toronto uh, for a while, and I was CP's uh, health reporter in 2003 during the original SARS outbreak. Um, Toronto was the only place outside of Asia that had community spread of SARS. It was the first time I'd ever covered an infectious diseases outbreak. It was very full on, but I learned a ton, and I also also learned to, among other things, to really respect the uh, power of new diseases to inflict a lot of pain. So uh, it's an area that I've done a lot of reporting on since sort of pandemic preparedness. So fast forward to New Year's Eve 2019, you know, I'm off on vacation visiting with family and I checked my email and noticed something from an organization called ProMed. It's an infectious diseases alert system that is maintained by the International Society for Infectious Diseases. They pushed out this advisory saying that there were reports of four 
unusual pneumonia cases in Wuhan, China, and they were looking for information about them. That immediately sort of set off alarm bells for me because since the original SARS outbreak, China's done a lot of work to improve its surveillance systems. It knows how to look for the causes of pneumonia. And if they were seeing pneumonia cases and couldn't figure out what was causing pneumonia cases, then that was something that the world needed to be paying attention to. So you get this alert. Did this alert even say this was a coronavirus of concern or was it simply these are pneumonia cases? We don't know the source. These are pneumonia cases. We don't know the source, but um, they would have heard fairly quickly. I mean, within the next couple of days of rumors of, of coronaviruses, I certainly was hearing about that it might be a new coronavirus within a couple of days. ProMed is very plugged in and a lot of scientists all over the world reach out to its moderators to try to disseminate information. So they're a very good source. If that was late 2019, moving into early you know, 2020, that was still before a lot of people were paying attention to this. So what was it like to be a reporter then in those early days before it, it had so much attention? So initially it was a bit, I was going to say initially it was a bit unnerving, but it was unnerving all the way through. Um, you know, people weren't saying very much and that gets your sort of hackles up a little bit. People in the emerging infectious diseases field take the prospect of a new disease coming out of nature very, very seriously. They know that that can be a very damaging event. And so people's sense of alarm was quite high from the get-go. You know, I wrote our first story on January 4th, and in it I mentioned that there was talk that this could potentially be a new an infection caused by a new coronavirus. Initially, the Chinese were uh, focusing exclusively, it seemed, on a seafood market that also sold wild animals for slaughter and consumption. What, you know, you sometimes hear referred to as a wet market. It always seemed unlikely to me that that was the only place the new illness seemed was spreading from because it felt like looking for your keys under the streetlight sort of thing. You know, if if people there were sick, it had to have come from somewhere. So where had it come from? We still don't know the answer to that. So in the early days, I mean, it was unsettling. WHO quickly kicked into gear and was making itself available, disseminating information very early on. I mean, by mid-January, the people who cover these kinds of stories Everybody was sort of in top gear at that point, you know. I think a lot of the world sees the anniversary of the start of the pandemic coming up in a week or two, you know, with the anniversary of the declaration of the that a pandemic was underway. But really, from early January, the story was occupying my time full time and, you know, not just mine. At that point in time, I mean, what was your sense from conversations you were having with people about potentially how bad this was going to be? And you had a sense it was going to be bad. Did you feel a little bit like Chicken Little? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody was trying to get a sense of how bad it was. Uh, You know, the information coming out of China was alarming, but not sufficient to really to gauge things. You know, 
when we hear reports that they were building brand new hospitals from literally the ground up in like 10 days, nobody does that unless they really need to do that. You know, the same thing when they quarantined the entire city of Wuhan, which has 11 million inhabitants. You don't do things like that unless you really feel like you need to do something like that. So, you know, those were alarming things to see from a distance. And yet, outside of China, I mean, certainly the World Health Organization was urging countries to be ready and to be on the lookout for cases. And, and of course, the, you know, CDC was working to gear up. And, and you know, in late January, Nancy Missonnier, who was the head of the um, center at the CDC that is responsible for events like these, you know, she said to me, we are treating this as if it is going to be a pandemic. We hope it won't, but, you know, we are preparing as if it will be. So certainly people were doing the work, but publicly, you know, the messaging was not there. What the public was hearing, I think, was this is something unusual happening in China, but so far it's not a risk to Americans. I I, I could never figure that message out, frankly. I want to talk about kind of how things have gone in the last year. I mean, have you been surprised by the trajectory of the pandemic, how, how things have played out and, and what the last year is, has looked like? You know, some of the things that happened, I knew to expect. I knew that, that PPE would run out. I didn't think it would happen as quickly as it did. I knew that there would be runs on things like toilet paper. And yet it was very surreal to be grocery shopping sort of last March and April and walking through grocery stores that normally had, you know, completely stocked shelves, looking at shelves, you know, with (laughs) huge gaping holes in them where there were just nothing to buy. What I didn't expect about this pandemic was the politics of it. I did not expect that a political leader would see talking about a pandemic honestly, with the country that he he led as a political disadvantage to him and deciding not to do it because it was going to hurt his, he felt, his re-election chances. It never occurred to me that people would deny the existence of a disease threat and ignore it because it didn't fit their political thinking. That I never anticipated. I want to talk a little bit about where we are now. It seems like we're at a little bit of an inflection point. You know, just this week, we've had a third uh, vaccine authorized here in the U.S. Cases are certainly down from where they were at the start of the year when we saw a pretty big peak, even though that's been plateauing as of late. What do you make of, of where we are right now and kind of where things go from here with the pandemic? Well, we're obviously in a better position right now than we were a couple of months ago. I mean, at the beginning of the year, the cases were just at such an extraordinary high, and the daily death toll was just staggering. So any relief of that is obviously terrific. And of course, you mentioned the third vaccine being authorized for use. That's the Johnson & Johnson. There's not a ton of that vaccine that's going to be available for the next month or so, but it will be a big help in the United States. It's a much easier to administer vaccine and it's a one-dose vaccine. So that should be a big help when there are sufficient supplies. 
you know, it's hard to know where we are, to be honest, because we still don't know enough about this virus and the immunity that the virus induces when somebody's been infected with it, or for that matter, how long immunity induced by vaccination lasts. So, you know, right now, this decline in cases probably has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of people have been infected in the United States, and that's bringing down the numbers. But we don't know how long that post-infection immunity will last and whether some of the people who were infected over this winter might be infectable, if that were a word, again next fall. It's not clear. So while it's a good position, it's not a position where we should take it for granted that, you know, we're past the worst of this. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking today with Helen Branswell from STAT. She was one of the first journalists covering the pandemic and has become one of the most trusted voices reporting on COVID-19. And as, as someone who has really watched every incremental development in this, in this pandemic, it seems, what are some other big questions that you have that you think we still need answers to or that you would like to, to have answers to? So, um, you know, the durability of the immune protection that people get, as I just mentioned, we don't know how long the vaccines will protect for. That's a question that will take time to answer. Hopefully it will be something that's measured in years. Another thing that I'm very interested in is sort of how we learn as a species to live with this virus. I mean, it seems very unlikely at this point that we could drive it out of the human population in the way that SARS-1 was driven out of the human population. It feels like this thing is very well established and going to stay. And that means people will have to learn to live with this virus. The hope is that over time, that this is going to become like one of the human coronaviruses that effectively cause colds that, you know, we don't even monitor for them because a number of viruses cause colds and human coronaviruses are among them. Hopefully we get to the point where this virus just becomes another cold virus. But what that process is, how long it's going to take as our immune systems sort of get used to encountering this virus, that remains to be seen. I don't think it's going to be sort of a short-term thing. It might take a number of years. It might take a number of sort of waves as people get, you know, more and more exposure to the virus or to the vaccines. And over time, we learn how to control it better. But that's something I'm anxious for an answer, but the answer isn't likely to be available in the near term. You were recently awarded the George Polk Award for public service for your coverage of the pandemic over the last year, and not many awards of that type have been given out uh, specifically for kind of public service journalism. I'm hoping you can kind of reflect on that for me and talk about the role that you think journalism has played in the pandemic. There's certainly been a lot of scientific discovery, but it's been my impression that journalists have played an important part in kind of making sure the public understands that. Sure. Well, yes, that was a huge thrill, a very big surprise. <laughs> when I got the call informing me I'd won it, I thought I was being pranked. I, I really didn't believe that that was, you know, it was not something that was on my radar. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, there's been 
tremendous journalism done over the past year. And, you know, one of the big challenges about this is that when something new emerges, there's not really an evidence base. You know, scientists are learning about it in real time and sharing that knowledge with the public through journalists. I mean, obviously, previous knowledge acquired on coronaviruses through the SARS outbreak and uh, the research was helpful, but, you know, we were all learning about this as we went. You know, at the beginning of the year, the number of people who wrote about issues like this on a full-time basis in this country was quite small. And now there are a lot of people who probably would see themselves as, you know, infectious disease reporters or outbreak reporters. And, you know, there's a ton of really excellent work that's been done. When I say excellent work, I mean excellent journalism. It's it's really been very impressive, I think, to see how many reporters have sort of gone from zero to 60 in, in a very short period of time. How does it feel to have become over the course of this pandemic a voice that a lot of people have have turned to? You know, I'm I'm a journalist covering the situation here in Atlanta. I know I certainly turn to you as a resource. Do you feel like a burden of that responsibility? Um, no, I wouldn't call it a burden. I mean, I tell people I had a, have a very nichey niche, and I you know spent a lot of time acquiring a lot of information that I might never have used in my career. Is it a burden? I don't feel it's a burden. I do. I am tired. You know, <laughs> we are in the beginning of month 15 of, of this story for me, and I am tired, but so is everybody. I will say that um, there was a point at which we took my email address off our website because I was getting a lot of direct questions from readers, people who were legitimately concerned about things. You know, I remember one man writing about his wife who was a nurse in the front lines and she was pregnant and he was super concerned about, you know, what the virus might do in pregnancy and and he was asking for my advice and those kinds of emails were heart-wrenching, and I tried to answer those that I could, but I was getting so flooded with emails that eventually we took my email address off the site for a while. Because like most people who've been, you know, involved in coverage of this or the scientists who, who are trying to figure out what's going on with this, the epidemiologists, I mean, everybody's email accounts exploded. And that has been one of the big challenges, just sort of trying to see the email you need to see amongst all the the, the other stuff. Well, sure. I mean, and I, we certainly at our organization have gotten emails like that too, which just seems to be kind of a, a reminder of the value of uh, information. You know, people just want basic answers to questions. Yeah. That's true. And, and you know, early on, uh, Stat did um, some events sort of in the line of the Reddit Ask Me Anything. So we, we would put me or me and a couple of my colleagues online for an hour um, and people could just log in and ask questions and we'd try to answer as many as possible. We haven't done that for a while. I think sort of 
that was something that was much more needed in the early stage of the outbreak. I feel like the public has acquired quite a baseline of knowledge. You know, people talk, you know, about R-naughts and, and, you know, infection um, fatality rates and stuff with a, well, first of all, to hear people talking about those terms is just like staggering. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel like people have learned a ton in in the last year and it's kind of interesting i mean i also like i don't know if you watch saturday night live i mean every week they, they're talking about the vaccines by name i mean it's you know normally people don't talk about vaccines by brand right you know you got a flu shot you have no idea who made your flu shot people know like who are making the covid vaccines and even the sort of characteristics of the different covid vaccines it's when it hits Saturday Night Live, I mean, it, it's quite stunning. Do you think that there will be any lingering effects of that? I mean, this kind of larger cultural awareness of the risks and the potential implications of an emerging infectious disease, do you think this is going to stick with the general public in, in any appreciable way? I hope so. And on balance, I would say I think it will. I mean, you know, it's been such a disruption of life that I I think people are going to remember this. But I w- will say that for a few years after the first SARS outbreak, everybody was sort of on high alert. And the number of people who got flu shots in the subsequent seasons went way up. Uh, you know, people were concerned. But then life goes on. And, you know, there was a flu pandemic in 2009 that turned out to be very mild and that kind of reset people's expectations that maybe the bad one isn't going to come. It's really hard to know how long this will um, influence thinking. Like, I do know that throughout this, people who work in the pandemic preparedness sphere have been talking about the need to sort of capitalize off this, learn the lessons, make sure that while people are responding to this, they're also sort of making note of the things that worked and the things that didn't work and trying to capture that knowledge so that there's an effort to better prepare for the next time. You know, the fact remains, though, that you know, the people who are responding to this are all beyond exhausted and not doing the jobs that they normally have to do or doing them sort of part time. I mean, there are all sorts of public health areas that are suffering right now because of the need to devote so much attention to the pandemic. And when the pandemic is over, you know, those people are going to have to go back to the things that they haven't been able to do right now. And, and you know, there's always the risk that even though people have the best of intentions, you know, the pull to resume life as it was before and to get back to ensuring that, you know, childhood vaccination rates, for instance, get back to where they need to be because they've suffered during the pandemic. The pull to get back to that kind of stuff can sort of erode the capacity to, you know, fully capture all the the teachings that this this pandemic has for the world and and it's going to be interesting to see you know there have been lost opportunities in the past i hope people make the most of this one helen branswell is a writer for stat 
Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.